Time Lords of Gallifrey, Daleks of Skyro, I serve notice on you all. Too long I have stayed my hand, no more. Today, you leave me no choice. Today, this war will end. No more. No more. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Jason. And I'm Ruth. Welcome back. Thank you very much for joining me. Today uh, it's a pleasure. Oh, thanks for having us. <laughs> uh, today we're going to talk about the stories that have been released on the new Steel Ray Blu-ray box set for the 50th anniversary. So this is the name of the Doctor, the night of the Doctor, the day of the Doctor, the time of the Doctor, and an adventure in space and time. So this is just a fantastic period of Doctor Who, I think, wasn't it? The mm-hmm. 50th, the all kind of the anticipation and some cool surprises in there. Um, any particular memories that you've got this one, Jason? Besides the day of the Doctor, which the, the, the day that went out was like kind of like chomping at the bit, wait, wait mm-hmm. for, I think it went broadcast quarter to eight, wasn't it? You know, desperately like mm-hmm. wanting to, like, you know, it to be quarter to eight, staying away from any spoilers. Um, and also, one of the things um, I did do is halfway through watching it, as it was broadcast, I booked the cinema showing for 2210 at my local cinema because I <laughs> thought, this is so amazing, I've got to go and see it on the big screen. And then as soon as it stopped broadcasting, I got in my car, drove <laughs> to my local cinema, queued up and went to see it again on the big screen. In oh, Freedom. that's brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. How about you, Ruth? Was this, this you'd started watching Doctor at this point? Yeah, well, I my my relationship with Doctor is um uh, a little bit um well, I suppose unconventional because I I started watching it. I, I watched the Rusty Davies era and then jumped off um, when Tennant left because um, I, I kind of only watched it in a casual capacity. Um, and then uh, it was 2013 when I really got into the show, like in earnest, because. Um, I watched Asylum of the Daleks on a whim and just absolutely loved it. And uh, I, I really liked um, Jenna Coleman and I was really excited to find out she was the new companion. Um, so I, I followed for the uh, Series 7B, uh, caught up with Matt Smith stuff and what I'd missed. And um, so by the time the 50th anniversary aired, I was really on board and I was really excited. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't really have any specific memories. I think I just... It was for me. It was that kind of engaging with that energy as as a kind of a new Doctor Who fan, I suppose, which was really exciting. And by that point, I started reaching out to people and kind of getting more involved in the fan circles. So it was just really exciting because that that kind of uh, culmination point for a lot of people, um, where you know fan buzz was at its highest, was kind of also for me like my introduction to that. So um, that was a really nice experience. Yeah, it was, it was great time, wasn't it? Just atmosphere, Twitter mm-hmm. and social media and everything. It was, uh, yeah, I remember that being really good. I, I was um, at the 50th, um, the celebration at the XL uh, on the actual oh, anniversary. Oh, fantastic. Looking up to be there. And um, I'm lucky as well that I, I wasn't in the panel where Tom Baker <laughs> revealed that he was in the Day of the Doctor. Yeah, he, he blurted it out in the afternoon, oh, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, so you were, if, when, when you arrived, you were either... Um, uh, I think it was a Weeping Angel or a, 
Santaran, I can't quite remember. So um, because there's so many people there, they had two kind of sittings for every panel. Mm-hmm. So the, the, I think it was the, whichever one I wasn't on um, was the one where Tom <laughs> Baker had, uh, had let everyone know. So I had a real, a near miss there. Um, yeah, because that was that was such such a brilliant moment. Um, but I didn't get to see the the actual episode until the day after, because I, I hadn't got a ticket for this screening at the XL, mm-hmm. uh, which would have been amazing just watching it with all those other fans. Yeah. And then I was seeing some friends in London, and when I got back to theirs, they had forgot to record it for me. And oh, no. <laughs> so they, I had it at home, so when I travelled back up to Cumbria the next day, it was the first thing I did, so I got through the yeah. door, switched the TV on. <laughs> that that to happened it. to me. Um, when the series first came back, uh, I realised on the night that um, the first episode, Rose, aired, I had tickets for um, to see Feeder at the Manchester Apollo, and I was absolutely gutted. <laughs> oh, no. I was like, I don't really want to go. I want to watch the new <laughs> Doctor Who because it's not been on air for you know since 1996. So um, I remember getting back very very late that night <laughs> and like putting on the video recorder because obviously we didn't have catch up TV then. I had to record it on a videotape. Um, so yeah, it's a very similar thing, like you know, missing out on an episode as it's been broadcast yeah yeah Neil so I was not on Twitter for 24 hours or so yeah. that oh definitely yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny to think isn't it that we're still recording on VHS when Doctor Who came back like it, in some ways it doesn't seem that long ago and then when you think about that that's um, that just seemed like a different age doesn't it yeah it does VHS. well when you think about it we only started getting iPlayer was launched um, around about the time that Voyager Damned went out that Christmas mm. So iPlay has only been out around for about, is it 13 years now? Yeah. Of course, yeah. Just adapt so quickly, don't you? Yeah, mm-hmm. it just shows how much television has changed, you know, like from you actually like staying in to watch a show or to record it on video to now you can watch it whenever you want at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the faff of setting like the timer on the video. And oh, stuff. my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to the ease of uh, getting it now. Mm-hmm. So the the anniversary year we had series seven B, um, mm-hmm. which um, I think from the Rings of Akatan onwards seemed to pay homage to a different era of the classic series, and then you get to yeah, the name of the Doctor, and then right from the pre-titles it feels like the anniversary starting where you've got the cameos from from previous Doctors. Um, it felt like that th- this was kind of like where it was kicking off. Um, and, and and I feel like the name of the Doctor as well has a real Five Doctors vibe, where the, the TARDIS <laughs> tomb is a bit like the the Tower of Rassilon and sort of different ways into it, and the the sort of glimpses that we get of Troughton and Pertwee and Herndal, mm-hmm. um, obviously they're all from the Five Doctors in it. So it, I think another way in in which it felt like part of the anniversary celebrations. Yeah, I mean um, that whole series, like you said, is kind of a tribute and and. They kind of, I mean, Stephen Moffat obviously worked Clara's whole thing into that with the whole um, uh, Echo business and jumping into the time stream and getting spread out throughout his whole uh, timeline. So they definitely integrated the kind of self-contained story of that into like a, a massive preamble for the 50th anniversary, which was was quite fun, really. Yeah, they kind of like started sowing the seeds, didn't they, through mm-hmm. that, like you say, the, the season 7B. It's like Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS 
where Clara goes into the library and she sees that big tome, mm-hmm. which is the history of the Time War. And like, it's like, you know, we're, we're leading up to something here because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously we're, we're marching towards the 50th anniversary. And is, is the Time War going to be part of that? Because, you know, we'd, you know, then get the rele- revelation at the end of the name of the Doctor mm-hmm. of... Um, a complete incarnation of the Doctor that you know we never even knew about. And what's so uh, kind of in- interesting about uh, this whole like a uh, uh, Doctor trilogy, I guess. Uh, well, is that's what it is the of the Doctor trilogy um, is that. It, it ties up so many different plot threads. Like you have the the Clara mini arc of the Impossible Girl and uh, scattering her throughout time and space, and then you have basically the entirety of Matt Smith's Doctor's arc tied up in all of this, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously we'll get into more with the time of the Doctor. But it's still very much tied up in uh, the name of the Doctor because it's kind of we see the aftermath of Trenzalore, and then you also have like things that harken back to the the tenant era and the Eccleston era of the time war and the fallout and the um the destruction of Gallifrey so there's so many different moving parts in these episodes that feel like a massive culmination point for all of the different eras which I really like such an epic scope isn't it like mm. re-watching these over the last week or so yeah it's um it's it's tremendous um I like to say the the cliffhanger to the name of the doctor um, of the John Hurt reveal, um, it's hard really to think back that now. Just like kind of what a mind blowing concept that mm. was—the secret incarnation of the Doctor that hadn't even called himself the Doctor—and and at that point we didn't know for sure, did we? And I think until the night of the Doctor that it was definitely an incarnation between the eighth and the ninth Doctors. I think that was like the smart money was on that, but it wasn't really confirmed, was it? Until um, until we got that McGann regeneration. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I remember the online buzz and, like, you know, you try and stay away from spoilers, but sometimes you are a little tempted and you delve into one of the forums. And one of the popular theories was that John Hurt was actually going to be Omega pretending (laughs) to be the Doctor. And it's like, well, wow, you know, okay, so if you're going to bring Omega back for the 50th anniversary, that kind of, like, ties into the very first anniversary story, The Free Doctor. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of, like... You know, at a time, people were believing that theory as well, but um, it, it was just such a shock because you have essentially one of the greatest actors um, of his day, of his time, who, who's ever lived. A big Hollywood star turns around in an episode of Doctor Who, and then you get that caption say, introducing John Hurt as the Doctor. And it's like, jaws dropped. Yeah. I remember watching it on the sofa and going, what? <laughs> it's brilliant. Actually, the Omega thing, I was, I was just reading about this in the Complete History, um, that this was something that they, uh, I think Stephen Moffat and the production team had put on some paperwork to, uh, to dispel the, um, you know, to put people off the scent that he was playing. Oh, really? So doctor. it actually came officially through? Yeah, that. <laughs> uh, so some of the, uh, the, uh, the call sheets or whatever, so that if um, you know if any fans got wind of it, they'd thought, oh, he's playing Omega, and then wouldn't have dug any deeper into it. So that's um, that's kind of like uh, with Missy, when they had her saying she was the Rani uh, in yeah, one of the takes for Death in Heaven or Dark Water. Um, so it's a very clever kind of a sleight of hand, red herring sort of thing, because obviously fans would still get excited about that, but the real answer is, 
you know, probably more compelling, uh, especially having a secret incarnation of the Doctor. Something else I remember, um, although I wasn't that, like, familiar with all of the um, kind of more classic coup references at the time, I've caught up a lot more since, um, I remember the Valyard's name came up a lot as well, because obviously that's uh, like a corrupted version of the Doctor, and, and the Valyard's name is actually mentioned in the name of the Doctor episode by uh, the Great Intelligence. Yeah, oh yeah, um, yeah. So um, I remember a lot of people were kind of latching onto that as to John Hurt's identity, like he was just this kind of. I, I think some people thought he was going to be like this antagonistic force rather than uh, what he turned out to be, which was more of a kind of um, very world weary, grey incarnation of the Doctor. Yeah, I think that. That's... Yeah, I mean, with the Veil Yard, is it like the the between the the 12th and the 13th regeneration. Mm -hmm. And I think, obviously, that speculated the fan theories that Tennant had used up to regenerations. So, you know, was John Hurt, like you say, going to be the Valyard or the mm -hmm. 13th incarnation of Doctor? And then, you know, we have, like, the Valyard in between. Or, yes, so I remember, like, hearing about that as well. Slightly a shame that that wasn't seeded a little bit earlier or, or confirmed earlier that the Eleventh Doctor was the final incarnation of the sort of the original uh, run of thirteen, isn't it? It would have uh, maybe added a bit more tension. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I guess part of the reticence was we'd just come off a series where the Doctor's death was a big kind of uh, arc. True. You know, series six was all about the Doctor's impending death, so they they probably were a bit hesitant to over emphasize that too much uh, this time around but it was kind of like set up at the final at the 11th hour um because it's kind of just mentioned as a throwaway line uh in um in the time of the doctor although obviously it still forms a massive part of the core conflict because the doctor does believe in that episode that uh this is his final incarnation and his final uh, stand i suppose um and again this is this whole episode uh the name of the doctor is kind of is exploring the aftermath of that at, at the same time of setting up uh, john hurt's doctor and the day of the doctor you also have um what is essentially an alternate universe of the time of the Doctor, uh, of what happened afterwards. So um, if the Doctor had died, uh, as he expected to in the time of the Doctor, this is what they would find and this is what would happen. Um, which obviously, you, you, once you actually start thinking about all of the paradoxes of that, your head starts to turn into scrambled eggs because, I mean, you've got Clara entering the time stream um, but she could only enter it if there was a grave to jump into. But because of something she also did, which was, you know, tell the Time Lords to give the Doctor more regenerations, <laughs> that then undid that happening in the first place. So, I mean, there are so many paradoxes surrounding all of the Clara stuff. Um, and then there's also the fact that she was also involved in the whole time war, uh, changing the course of that. And then because of that, the Time Lords were calling through the cracks. So, oh my God, just <laughs> it's just a mess. It's an absolute web of paradoxes and, and different contradictions. But that's part of the fun, I suppose, of Doctor Who. Yeah, you shouldn't think about it too much with the wobbly timey wind. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, I'm what you touched upon there, um, obviously the fact that it was all kind of like wrapped up very much at, like, at the last minute, I think 
part of that was down to Matt Smith suddenly deciding to not renew his contract, wasn't it? So Moffat yeah. was kind of like put on the back burner, wasn't he? And that's um, that's quite a funny um, kind of segue into. Uh, I, I'm sure you guys have heard of this um, because I remember. I mean, I mean, there was obviously the whole announcement of Matt Smith saying he was going to be there for Series Eight, which obviously wasn't the case in the end. But um, I remember Steve Moffat has told the story about how at one point uh, during, I think it must be in 2013, or at least during uh, the the pre-production of the Day of the Doctor. Um, I think the only person, the only lead actor they had signed on for, for definite for the day of the doctor was Jenna Coleman. So Moffat was like having this panic of like, okay, am I going to be able to write a 50th anniversary of Doctor Who with literally just Jenna Coleman and no other like lead Doctor Who actors, no doctors. Um, and uh, his idea was like, um, it was kind of centered around a world where the doctor didn't exist. Um, and then he would have lots of kind of like, um, cameo styles, um, uh, you know, different famous actors playing the doctor, but kind of like, not really, uh, so a bit like Lenny Henry or Hugh Grant or Rowan Atkinson, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, it was going to be kind of like exploring uh, the Doctor's absence and, and trying to to bring him back into the world or the idea of him back into the world. Um, I mean, obviously that didn't go much further than a, a kind of mad story concept, but it's quite funny to imagine uh, what, what they would have done if they were that limited in terms of their, their core cast. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've heard that as well. Yeah, because Matt Smith's contract had run out and he hadn't yet mm-hmm. sort of, I think decided, yeah, how many more he was going to do. So it was sort of a bit up in the air about whether they'd even have him. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been crazy, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, the thing I remember um, sort of after this episode went out, so I've got going on Twitter and um, saying that some people actually thought that the John Hurt reveal at the end meant that the doctor's name was John Hurt. I guess people that didn't really know who John Hurt was. Um, or that he was going to be the, the – because we knew that Matt Smith was leaving, I think, by the time the name of the Doctor went out, didn't we? Or that he was going to be the next Doctor and that type of thing. Um, but I didn't think it was that ambiguous. But, I mean, I think there is the maybe valid criticism that having said that – having the dialogue having just said, well, this isn't the Doctor, I you know – the caption then saying John Hurt as the Doctor was a little bit contradictory, <laughs> uh, maybe through some people. But I mean, that's kind of like uh, based on the assumption that you don't know who John Hurt is. Yeah, I, mean, I guess very I young mean, uh, viewers might not. Which yeah. I'd be surprised if, if many people didn't. Yeah, you've got to love social media for those <laughs> kind of like theories when they pop up. That just reminded me of all the crazy Clara theories that came out uh, before the name of the Doctor, like. There were some insane ones. She was speculated to be just about every previous female character in the show at one point. <laughs> I remember um, because Oswin reused the same chair prop as uh, Jenny from Doctor's Daughter. Everyone thought she was Jenny. And it's like, <laughs> just because they have the same chair? Like, it's, it's amazing the theories people come up with. Um, there was also stuff about her being like... Uh, obviously the, the usual kind of the Rani, the master, all of this stuff. Um, but it's quite funny. Uh, I, I'm very glad that um, it turned out, you know, that she was just a normal person and um, because it would have been a bit uh, kind of reductive characterised if she was just this um, 
excuse for a, a cheap plot twist. <laughs> um, yeah. And obviously, you know, plenty of people make criticisms of Clara's character in that series, uh, which I don't fully agree with because that's the series where I jumped on. So obviously I was engaged with the uh, the character and the story arc there. Um, but I, I think... Um, you know, I'm also very glad that they resolved all of that really heavy plot stuff uh, quite early on because it was kind of a bit distracting from the actual character herself. Um, it was more about the build-up to the 50th anniversary. Um, so a lot of the actual character stuff kind of went under the radar, I think, um, and they, they would obviously build on that much more. And I think I think her character really comes into her own uh, in these episodes and obviously even more so in Series 8 and Series 9. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember seeing quite a lot of hate and, and stuff, you know, online for Clara mm-hmm. and people really not engaging with her. And I, I thought the Impossible Girls um, arc was, was really clever. Yeah. But here is, is like varying, various different incarnations of the same character throughout time. And what's the reason because of it? And obviously it mm-hmm. gave the Doctor something to investigate in that, like, eight-episode, like, second part of the season seven that we got so i really didn't get the hate that from that but i really thought clara then came into her own from season eight onwards because Mm -hmm. she then wasn't kind of like technically a plot device Mm -hmm. once she became a teacher and then you had the romance with uh danny um Mm -hmm. and that tragedy as well then that led into series nine where she became like so like wanting the adventure and not caring about the danger because obviously mm-hmm. she'd lost Danny, then that like links into like how she then left the series. I, I thought the whole um arc of Clara's journey was fantastic. Oh yeah, I mean I obviously agree because I'm writing a continuation or I'm working on one. Uh and um so, yeah, but I, I totally agree with you. And I think uh, one of the things about uh, Series 7B is that it purposefully inverts, uh, which obviously is a theme for Clara, inverts the Doctor-Companion dynamic in such a way that the Doctor's the POV character. You know, like, we're with him trying to figure out this mystery, and Clara's kind of kept at distance from the audience because of that, which I think, on the one hand, it's really cool and subversive to do that because it's fun to be more with the Doctor and seeing through his eyes and Clara being this more mysterious uh, kind of character that we're trying to figure out rather than the other way around. But at the same time, one of the problems with that is you're keeping your new companion at arm's length. Um, So I think that's one of the reasons why people didn't engage with her as much, uh, because, because the audience had the Doctor's perspective and the Doctor saw her as a mystery box. So that was kind of, uh, I think, having her character introduction filtered through that lens uh, kind of worked against people becoming invested her in her initially. Um, and um, But at the same time, I think there's loads of really uh, strong stuff in there. You mentioned The Rings of Akaten, uh, which is a really good episode for her character and kind of establishing her philosophy. Um, and obviously the name of the Doctor is kind of like her big hero moment, um, which is a big culmination point for her. Um, but in many ways, it really is only the start of her journey and her character really coming into her own. Um, and I, I really like how the 50th anniversary kind of feels um, like you can have a bit more of her a dynamic with the Doctor without all of that, um, without all of the mystery stuff kind of on top of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I agree with everything both said there. Yeah. yeah. And I think 
you know, probably maybe what Stephen Moffat thought was needed for the name of the Doctor as well was a reminder of the, all the Doctor's previous incarnations uh, leading up to the 50th and a multi-Doctor story. Um, so by having her arc, you know, sort of um, end, mm-hmm. traveling back through his time stream and, and a reminder of these different faces and things. Um, and then, like I said before, the huge reveal of John Hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's such a great setup. And also the clever thing that I think Moffat did is because there was such an anticipation of, like, are all the Doctors going to return for the 50th anniversary story that Moffat kind of, like, gazumped us all by having mm-hmm. the previous Doctors already in name of the Doctor. So mm-hmm. a, a story before we get to the 50th anniversary, here's all the cameo appearances um, from the previous Doctors. Yeah, some of them were stand-ins, but some of them were existing footage. And mm-hmm. I thought the way they integrated the William Hartnell footage, oh, that was Clara, as he steals the Type 40 um you know, TARDIS. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very cleverly done, and that kind of like kind of like gave us those little cameos of the Doctor. And also, another clever thing that he did, he wrong-footed us because we'd already then had those cameos. Mm-hmm. Then, when you get to the point in the Day of the Doctor, where you have that big like moment, you know, where all the Doctors then turn up to rescue Gallifrey, then that that just absolutely takes you by surprise because yeah. you're not expecting it because you've already had those doctor moments in the story previously absolutely and um even even that kind of pre-title sequence on its own is just so delightful and exciting i mean even even me at the time who didn't have the same relationship with the, the the show's entire history? I was so exhilarated to see Clara speaking to the first Doctor because it was just it's it's not something the series had ever really done before. I don't think, um, and it was just really exciting to just that that bit where you know you have one of the technicians in Gallifrey saying what kind of idiot would steal the Fogarty Tardis and that <laughs> kind of zoom out into Gallifrey. It was just so exciting, um, and I think that's a lot. You know, it was kind of the start of the celebration that pre titles wasn't it it was like that and that start of that exhilaration of seeing all of these past references and past doctors and it it was just fantastic and I think it was a perfect way to feed into the 50th anniversary Mm -hmm. and and for newer fans as well who aren't that familiar with the classic series getting those little clips it just sort of um, excites your imagination and and Mm -hmm. wants you to makes you want to find out more I think I remember when I was a kid and um, we around the 30th anniversary. There was um, the uh, what's it called, 30 Years in the TARDIS documentary, and just before that, there'd been one called Resistance is Futile. You'll remember that, Jason. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're going to show up my age now, here, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Resistance <laughs> is futile. It went yeah. out in 1992, um, just before they started a repeat run of um, a story from each Doctor in that year. Yeah, so I hadn't seen um, many classic stories at that point, but seeing all those clips on those documentaries, it was just like, oh, wow, Like I've got to see that story. I can't wait to see that one. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm going back even further, I remember when Tom Baker left and in that gap between Tom Baker and Peter Davison's like, series starting, they repeated um, some stories and they held it under the banner of the five faces of Doctor Who and it went out at tea time on BBC Two, uh, weekdays, and they started with An Unearthly Child. They then showed the Crotons, because there wasn't a lot of surviving Triton episodes. They then showed the Three Doctors, 
the Carnival of Monsters, and then Logopolis leading into obviously the launch of season nineteen. And as a nine-year-old, you know, I'd only ever like seen past Doctors in photographs in the Doctor Who Weekly or the Doctor Who Monthly, as it then turned into. You know, that was just like you know, absolute heaven for a Doctor <laughs> Who fan to actually see past adventures mm-hmm. and see that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think any time that you you get to be a Doctor Who fan and you get to learn about the series, but then when you start to see the show reference its past, it kind of like generates that excitement in you to then go back and like find out even more about the show's history. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Definitely. And then, uh, so not long after we had the name of the Doctor, the night of the Doctor was a, a total surprise that mm-hmm. just came out of nowhere i think it feels like when you talk to fans this is one of those things that like you remember where you were like the assassination i remember i was at work and somebody sent me a message and it was just like watch this but don't don't read anything about it beforehand and um i sort of uh, went into the sort of like this stairwell that was like nobody really used because we had a lift and (laughs) um and just sat and watched it and just absolutely that moment of um of paul mcgann appearing uh, with the the immortal line of um, "I'm the Doctor, but maybe not the one you're expecting." Is, uh, <laughs> yeah, is, with, with um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of McGann because I thought, you know, he's the great wasted opportunity. You know, he had one shot at it. You know, you've signed up for five years. It didn't launch in America as they expected, despite getting 10 million viewers. You know, in the UK. Um, so, you know, I love his big finish stuff. So uh, I was actually off that day from work um, because it was my um, close to my birthday and I'd booked a couple of days off. And I remember just, like, pottering around, not doing much, and then just seeing something, I think, on the BBC's Doctor Who Twitter feed, basically saying, we've got a treat for you. It's going to go online on the red button around about 12 o'clock. And thinking, oh, I wonder what that is. Oh, perhaps it's the trailer for the 50th or... Perhaps it's a clip. And I remember like suddenly like just switching on my TV and clicking on the red button and waiting for this thing to come up and suddenly being like presented with Paul McGann as the mm-hmm. eighth doctor uh, in a brand new adventure and absolutely like losing myself. <laughs> I remember cheering around the room. God knows what the neighbours must have thought. <laughs> so what the hell's going on next door? But yeah, it was, it was brilliant to see him back in the role. <laughs> Fantastic. Did you, did you see that on the day of release, Ruth? I did, yes. Obviously, I didn't have the same context as a lot of people, but I, I knew who the eighth doctor was. I just, obviously, I this was still still during a period where I'd only just kind of caught up on Matt Smith stuff. So I had a whole lot of kind of pre-2005 uh, who to, to catch up on. Um, but it was still, you know, because of the energy of the 50th, even though I didn't have the same kind of personal history with McGann's Doctor I was still really excited especially because if, even if you're like a child or, or someone like me who was kind of still fairly new to things uh, in terms of the show's wider history it was so exciting just to have who is this Doctor especially in the context of like the Time War and, and him regenerating into Paul McGann you have all of this kind of uh, history that you, you don't know about and, and and also obviously a lot has happened clearly in between uh, the TV movie and uh, this mini-sode so it's really interesting kind of asking the questions about 
you know, how did the doctor, how did this doctor specifically get into this position? And, you know, the fact that he had to end up essentially giving up the mantle of the doctor by the end of that episode is really interesting and, and engaging for something that's only condensed into about six minutes. Yeah, because I think at that point, a lot of people had assumed, given like what um, the ninth doctor says in Rose, when he looks in the mirror and goes, oh, the ears are a bit like, you know, conspicuous. Um, we always thought it was the eighth doctor who fought in the time war. We always thought it was the eighth doctor. Whenever the ninth doctor or the tenth doctor or the eleventh doctor was referring to the fact that, you know, I wiped everybody out, I wiped the Time Lords out, or I wiped the Daleks out. We always assumed it was the Eighth Doctor who did it. So to have that kind of like rug pulled out from under us and then presented with, uh, like you say, the secret incarnation and going, well, you know, the Eighth Doctor must have had such a bad kind of like experience to go from the very upbeat confident joyful kind of character that he was in the tv movie to get to the point where he is in the night of the doctor where mm-hmm. he goes enough is enough I, i've tried to stay away from the time war i've done what i can he, i think that's what one of the lines that he actually has i do what i can but i don't get involved mm-hmm. because it's not my fight and then finally realizing that he's left it too long and the universe is on the brink and he really does have to now step up and get involved but by doing it, he has to renounce the name of the Doctor. And again, that you know ties into the previous episode mm. and then dovetails so nicely into the day of the Doctor. Yeah, and um, I, I love the things like uh, um, the details, like uh, having this kind of temporary companion that you immediately latch onto, um, and she obviously is dead as soon as you've met her, basically. And then obviously you have this of Khan, which are really, it has this real kind of um, uh, esoteric kind of uh, almost uh, dark fantasy kind of vibe that episode. And obviously the sisterhood are a big part of that because they very much kind of hearken to that sort of thing. Um, but I love the whole regeneration uh, with these kind of steaming goblets um, and the doctor being able to basically influence and choose his um, his next incarnation. Although, uh, kind of funny aside, um, I don't. You guys have probably read the novelization, but uh, I do find it really funny that um, it's basically implied to be a placebo effect, yeah. um, and the sisterhood have basically just put lemonade and um, dry ice in the goblets. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that book. I think that's my favourite Doctor Who book ever, I think. Um, and it, it's so, I mean, I, I love The Day of the Doctor, but it so just deepens your love for it, I think, mm. reading the book. Um, because there's so many scenes that aren't in the TV story that you get to see. Yeah, and, and definitely. The, the whole thing of it, and it was the Night of the, cha- the Night of the Doctor is one of the chapters in there. Mm. Um, it's brilliant. And like you see, for such a short episode, like six, seven minutes, the range that Paul McGann gets to play in those few minutes um, of different emotions and, and everything like that, it's, it's brilliant. And I think it must really help that he's played the Doctor on um, on Big Finish for so many years prior to that, kept mm-hmm. him really kind of match fit for it. But he's just immediately the Doctor again, and uh, yeah, he's it's, it's brilliant in it. I read um, James Curie Smith's Black Archive on the Night of the Doctor, it came out fairly recently. And um, he was making some really good points I hadn't really thought about, that how it continues from the TV movie. A lot of themes of sort of religious imagery, 
So in the TV movie, there's the um, when he regenerates, he's got that sort of white shroud around him, and the thing when he when he's trussed up in the TARDIS in the uh, near the Eye of Harmony with the sort of crucifix like oh, thing, crown of nails, yeah, yeah, and the, the yeah, crown of thorns type thing, and then in this, the physician heal thyself is is, mm. uh, is a biblical quote, and the the sort of the cup and the goblet, you know, I guess it's a bit like the Holy yeah. Grail and um, and that type of thing. Um, and, and it's the I guess the, the, the twice that um, when McGann regenerates from McCoy and then into Hurt, it's the, it's the only two times the Doctor's actually dead, isn't it? Um, which is more it of is, like a yeah. resurrection that's, thing. That's it's, true, um, yeah. Because um, normally it's kind of. Um, I mean, obviously, certainly in the new new series, it's very much standing up in the TARDIS, arms yeah. thrown wide. Uh, whereas I think this is obviously a very different context for a regeneration, um, and it, it feels a lot more uh, kind of painful and visceral. I think, mm. uh, especially because we don't really see we only see like the initial um, transformation. We don't see her except in a reflection but I think it's it's a real kind of dark take on regeneration uh, compared to the more kind of um, bittersweet kind of tone of the other ones yeah it's almost like he's you're not even sure where it's going to work when he's about to take the elixir you know which is why he kind of like um, gives that little lovely toast to all his companions and, and mm. makes all the, the big Finnish companions like uh, immediately part of the tele Vision Canyon, yeah. Canon, which I absolutely loved, you know. Um, even though I, I count the big finished stuff as Canon anyway because it's sort of authorized by the BBC. But yeah, it's almost as if he's like, you know, he's putting up this the goblet. Almost think, well, you know, I'm not even sure this is going to work. But here we go, you know. Let let let's see if it, it does. And if it does, then you know, I'm here to to fight the time more and uh, defeat the Daleks. Yeah, it's 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 great what it achieves in in a few minutes. I, I mean, it leaves you crying out for more eight mm-hmm. TV stuff. Um, but that's good, I think, isn't it? It leaves people wanting more. Oh, absolutely, and and obviously they've got all the. Uh, I think they've. I haven't listened to them myself, but there's there's a lot of time war sets uh, that Big Finish have done, and um, they've done a whole lot of background stuff, kind of tying into that. They've got Richard Armitage as Razalon now, and uh, so I I don't know what those are like, but um, it's nice that uh, Stephen Moffat is very good at giving you hints of things that can then be expanded on in expanded material which I've always really loved because mm. uh, he loves to write little holes into his into his episodes purposefully so that either fans or big finish can kind of fill the gaps which I really appreciate yeah there's there's a lot of that and um and and obviously we're going to talk about the time of the doctor the you've got the the 11th Doctor just aging into old age, so mm. any time he wants to come back for a multi-Doctor story, yeah. <laughs> um, it can just be set during that time on Trenzalore. He can just have flipped out for a bit, can't he? And, uh, he can still appear as the Doctor when he's 17. Yeah. Right? Exactly. I mean, Matt Smith has got the best deal like of all of them, really. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, from the night of the Doctor to the day of the Doctor... Just, uh, if if not my favourite story of all time, and definitely the favourite of the modern series. Mm. Yeah, de- definitely. I, I, it, it's whenever I want a, a good, nice, feel-good fix of, of Doctor Who, um, and you know, I don't want to get dive into like a ten-part story or a six-part story from the classic era, or or you know, 
one of the ones from you know the new series it's always my go-to story mm. and i found over the last couple of years whenever we get to the 23rd of november each year which is like doctor who's anniversary i find it's the story i always pop on now because i think it encompasses everything it, it, it has everything for a doctor who story mm-hmm. absolutely and I think it's it's kind of it's it's the way it does so much paying tribute to the past while looking forwards. So it feels totally timeless in that regard, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. And 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 having John Hurt in there, he's like the perfect proxy for the classic doctors. He's he's the doctor doesn't know what a cup of soup is and, <laughs> and doesn't understand the pop culture references that the twenty first century doctors do. Uh, he's, you know, he can be a bit grumpy and all the rest of it. And it's just, you know, considering he's, he's, he wasn't a doctor, he's, he's the perfect stand-in, I think, for, for the older ones. There's a, yeah. a great line, isn't there, where um, I think it's the uh, Queen Elizabeth the first kisses the 10th Doctor, and he kind of, like, just leans over to the 11th Doctor and says, is this a regular thing? And he's like, yeah, it does seem to happen more regularly. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I love the, uh, the kind of, um, the energy he has when he's just, he thinks, uh, Tennant and Smith are his companion, the the doctor's companions. Uh, and, um, because obviously, uh, the, the, most of the classic doctors were, uh, when, I mean, Tennant and Smith are obviously the youngest uh, doctors at the time. Uh, and I love that kind of almost heart and energy, like mm. the dandy and the clown, that sort of yeah. <laughs> kind of scepticism towards them both and the exasperation, even though he's technically younger than both of them. And there's even that bit where he, he accepts the 10th doctor and goes, all oh, right, so you're the doctor. And what, him as well? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, the dialogue sparkles, doesn't it? As the, oh, um, it's just yeah. I, um, I just finished watching this just before we started recording, so I'm, yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm still kind of buzzing a little bit. Um, and there's a few things because it's been on the iPlayer for so long now that, like, a couple of times I've just sort of downloaded it and just watched the the last section, like from the point when the when the doctors uh, send a message to the the war council and explain <laughs> yeah. the plan just because from there on out with the, when the other doctors turn up um, and the music's awesome. And then the bit with Tom Baker at the end, um, I can just, just watch that bit. It's, uh, it's so it's, good. It's, it's pure, like just condensed fan excitement and joy, isn't it? That whole, the whole episode really, but especially that last bit. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just so exciting because it just, it's just one thing after another, isn't it? Because you've got, um, the, the kind of revelation that actually Gallifrey wasn't destroyed and that there's a way to save it. And then you get all of the doctors and then you get Peter Capaldi's eyebrows, which is obviously a massive moment. Uh, and then you get, you know, uh, the Eccleston clip as well. Uh, and then obviously Baker and then that final shot. It's just, it's just perfect, isn't it? Like I, I honestly couldn't think of a better way to tribute all of the doctors while I, I also getting Peter Gabaldi in there as well yeah because that, that's the first for the series obviously you know um, when the five doctors went out and again I'm showing the age here you know Colin Baker had been cast uh, as the sixth doctor um, but you know imagine you know the five doctors with a little sixth doctor cameo in it you know 
Again, as an 11-year-old, I would have gone, wow, you know, that's amazing. But, you know, for, for Capaldi to turn up in just that little section where it's like, you know, all 12 of them, no, sir, it's 13. Mm. And then you get that shot of the eyebrows. Mm. And then he just pulls the lever down. And, you know, it's, it's absolutely, it's a real punch the air moment because you're getting a little, like, sneak preview of the future. Mm-hmm. which is something that you rarely don't get in Doctor Who because, you know, up until, you know, I think recently, you know, they've never done the thing where they've shown, you know, oh, here's the 514th incarnation of the Doctor coming back, you know, in time. There's the hint of it with the curator, mm-hmm. uh, and I think Big Finish have kind of, like, elaborated on that, and Moffat has said that he is a future incarnation of the Doctor if you choose, you know, him to be that. Um, but it's something that you know the show had never done before. Yeah, um, and and the curator is brilliant, isn't it? Because only um, not the first time I watched it, but thinking about it another time, that he's he's got to be extraordinarily long lived. So even if he's not a time lord, he because he talks about getting the painting uh, Gallifrey Falls No More. He said oh, I, I obtained it under the most remarkable of circumstances. But then you think, well, he's been there since the reign of Elizabeth I. So <laughs> he's been the curator for 500 years minimum, hasn't Just he? Just been chilling, yeah. Um, I, I love, I lo- um, this is kind of going into spoilers for the, the novelisation, but I love how that's, uh, there's like a framing device and it's written from the curator's perspective, it's yeah. revealed to be. Um, and there's lots of fun little kind of references to his life and and where the curator might be at. There's a lovely bit about him having tea regularly with Clara, which I, I think is quite sweet. Um, and lo- lots of little details like that, which I really appreciate because um, Moffat still keeps the kind of uh, mysterious nature of the curator, but gives you these really fun hints mm-hmm. into who he might be and um, his relationship with the other doctors and what his life is and what his perspective is. Yeah, it's terrific. And, and on top of all the just the amazing sort of like fan service and stuff just brilliant ideas as well like the stuff about the dust in the in the under gallery <laughs> being the realization that they are statues that have been destroyed and that the zygons under the under the the covers um just such a cool idea it's there in plain sight for, for you know quite a bit of the episode before the realization comes that's it and that's a proper kind of Stephen moffat reveal as well isn't it yeah. something that's right there and then it just takes a different perspective to reveal it. He is very good at those behind-the-sofa moments, isn't he? Mm. Um, it's really clever how uh, the Zygon plot is integrated into the wider plot of the um, the Time War, isn't it? Like uh, it's a self-contained story in itself uh, about the Zygons kind of uh, invading, um, you know, playing the long game, and then that kind of ultimatum of uh, Kate wanting to destroy uh, London to save the world and you've got that whole dilemma there and having that reflect the bigger dilemma. It's so clever how he managed to manages to take these two different stories and merge them together into one cohesive plot, which I think is just is fantastic. And, and the way... Um, it influences John Hurt's Doctor's arc because mm-hmm. uh, obviously you have him... Um, with the moment and then you have those really lovely scenes uh like in the um the jail cell where it's the uh, same software different case that that whole scene is just wonderful 
because it's such a wonderful con- like condensing of the doctor um because uh, I remember uh, the moment says same software, different face at one point, which is really lovely. And then you have that really lovely scene with him and Clara uh, and the way that she picks up um, how he's actually a lot younger and he still hasn't made the decision to destroy Gallifrey yet. And I think that's kind of um, segueing into Clara again quickly is she's very much the representation of all of the companions in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, she encompasses all of them in some way, um, which I think is her character is kind of designed to be the 50th anniversary companion. Her birthday is the same as Doctor Who. Uh, she's named after uh, Elizabeth Saden. Um and the, a lot of her dates kind of correlate to the show and then obviously the time stream stuff. So I really love the whole representation of her, especially uh, in that barn scene where the doctors are about to destroy, Gallif- destroy Gallifrey. You have her as this kind of symbol of who, why the doctor needs a companion and what the companions mean to the doctor. And I think that's such a special moment because they're the ones who remind the doctor who he is and uh, what his name actually means. Yeah, and that's something that uh, Russell T. Davies touched upon a lot, didn't he? You know, Mm -hmm. that the Doctor does need somebody or he could potentially turn, you know, not bad, but he could then start to, you know, do things that, you know, that are totally not Doctor-like. You know, that conversation at the end of The Runaway Bride between the Doctor and Donna, you know, as in you need somebody, you know, I'm not going to come with you this time, but you know, you find somebody and travel with them because you you need somebody there to rein you in um, and not be the vengeful god all the time. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting how that's touched upon uh, in the day of the Doctor as well. Yeah, that the the first time it happened, there was just the War Doctor there, and this time, even though there's three Doctors, it, it's Clara that makes the difference, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that swings it the other way. And I, although people, I've seen plenty of people go, oh, Clara's too important and whatnot, it's kind of forgetting her actual function within that trilogy. Like, she does save the day a lot in that trilogy, in those three Doctor stories. But that's kind of the point, because the companion really is the one that makes the difference at the end of the day. You can have as many incarnations of the Doctor as you like, but it's the companion character that is the audience core. They're the representation of humanity and and the goodness of of the doctor and you know the doctor says they've always been the best of me and that's kind of what that scene is all about it's about um the companion and clara specifically uh seeing who the doctor is and being the one to remind him you know we've got enough heroes anyone can be or i mean we've got enough warriors any old idiot can be a hero um so you need to do what you've always done and that's be a doctor and, and she reminds me of the oath that he said, what was the oath that you made, you know, when you became, you know, decided to be, you know, took on the name of the Doctor. And, and you know, it's that lovely um, callback to the description that Terence Dix always used to give to mm. character, he, you know, never cruel, never cowardly, you know. And I, I'd love that that was finally, like, dropped into the show. That's a nice little callback to the show's history there. And it's really beautiful how that phrase just recurs throughout uh, Peter Capote, throughout the Moffat era and throughout the Clara era as well. So you've got um, the Doctor... um, uh, I mean, it's kind of the entire Moffat era from the 50th 
keeps referencing back to the 50th, doesn't it? Because you've got a hell bent, which returns to the barn. Um, you've got listen, which returns to the barn. Um, and obviously Clara's involved with both. Um, and then you've obviously got um, the Zygon invasion and Zygon inversion, which kind of works as like an epilogue to this episode's Zygon plot. Um, and then obviously you've got the never cruel or cowardly thing uh, happening again and again. So you've got the doctor kind of bestowing that onto Clara and hell bent before she goes off and gets TARDIS um, and then you get the you know the 12th Doctor passing that message on to his next incarnation so it's a really lovely kind of centre point for Stephen Moffat's era of Doctor Who I think Yeah I think it's originally it's from the making of Doctor isn't it? Um, it is yeah, yeah. Sticks book, and he, he must have struck a chord with Stephen Moffat because he, mm-hmm. he also uses it in The Curse of Fatal Death that kind of is about was it 99? The, yeah. the the spoof thing that he wrote, um, which is 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 uh, you know we're going to move on to the time of the Doctor. It's got those similarities. The Doctor in that has reached the end of the regeneration cycle. The companions saying uh, they were never cowardly and never cruel, and then they're granted more regeneration. I think it's just like the universe in the Curse of Fatal Death has has realised they can't you know <laughs> they, they can't live without the Doctor, and it's the Time Lords in in the time of the Doctor. But it's yeah, it seems to be something that that's really resonates with Stephen Moffat and uh, mm. that he keeps coming back to. I always liked um, the way it's amended in Hellbent as well, which very much feels like a response because obviously Hellbent harkens back to the day of the Doctor because it's the first Gallifrey story since that episode. Um, well, if you don't count listen and the end of that. Um, and I, I love the part where the Doctor says, never be cruel and never be cowardly, but if you ever are, always make amends, which feels like a kind of, you see how the Doctor's learned uh, since since the day of the Doctor. Um, and then obviously there's listen where you have Clara kind of reassuring the child Doctor um, and mentioning one day you're going to be here again, and on that day you'll be very scared indeed. Um, but she says how fear doesn't have to make him cruel or cowardly. So it, it's it's such a wonderful, I think, encapsulation of the Doctor, um, but while still accepting the fact that the Doctor won't always live up to that ideal, and it's something you strive towards, it's not something you just have permanently. Mm. And that's a lovely thing, again, just to talk about the book, it, it's the moments in the book that are in the first person, it's it's the Time Lord that wants to be the Doctor, that, that strives to live up to the Doctor, and the rest of the time it's written in the third person about the Doctor, isn't mm-hmm. it? Uh, and it's just those little slips and those real revealing moments where they haven't quite lived up to it or they're, they're acknowledging that. Um, yes, yeah, such a brilliant book. So the, the Time of the Doctor... The Matt Smith era um, overall, really. I think, as you were saying earlier, Jason, it doesn't feel like this was the plan, does it? Um, no, maybe no. And I think Moffat um, uh, has mentioned in, in interviews that, you know, he that the expectation was um, that Matt was going to sign on for Series A and then essentially what you get in the time of the Doctor is a season of mm-hmm. story arc compounded into like is it 65 minutes how long time with the doctor yeah about an hour and, yeah yeah it, i mean i like the episode i think it's a good episode you know that final five minutes where you know the doctor you know says you know i remember i'll always be the doctor and, and drops his bow tie and 
Amy turns up and, you know, there's the regeneration. I think that that's Doctor Who and it's some of its finest. But uh, it's a shame that we got such a truncated finale. Um, I think had we got two episodes like Tennant got, like a two-part finale, it wouldn't have seemed as bad. You know, mm. had this story been told over, say, two hours, 15 minutes like the end of time was because i think certainly there's there's a lot more plot in the time of the doctor than what there is in, is in the end of time the end of time is quite a fairly simple story when you you, you watch it back and and break it down but mm. the time of the doctor is is at times quite convoluted and condensed that it really does suffer being all squeezed into that final 65 minutes well, it's, I suppose it's because of just how much... I totally agree with you. I think uh, a two-parter would have uh, really helped the story a lot. Um, but I suppose, again, it's one of those things that Stephen Moffat had so much to, to resolve. Not only was it... Um, you know, building up to the new Doctor's regeneration, you had to t- he had to tie up like three series worth of story arc, uh, while also responding to the fiftieth anniversary. So I think, given the constraints he had, I think it was really clever how he he worked within the limitations that he had, uh, even if it could have been done, you know, in a more um, a less kind of packed and rushed way. I suppose, yeah. and I really love that episode myself like i i think once you get past the initial uh kind of naked jokes and stuff mm. which I, I mean i don't mind myself but i think it kind of could have been dedicated to something more uh, <laughs> more meaty i suppose um and less awkward um but i i really love all of the stuff with with clara getting sent back and um and the doctor kind of wanting to protect her, but her not standing for that. And it, it reminds me a lot of the the doctor in um, uh, the Bad Wolf and the Party of the Ways. Yeah. You know, sending his companion away to protect them, um, and the companion not having any of that. And you know, her holding on to the outside of the TARDIS. And and any for me, it's when she arrives um, to find the doctor really old. That bit almost just gets me so much because you've got the the scene with the the cracker, uh, which obviously is referenced in Last Christmas, so that really hits home. Um, and then you've got the Doctor sacrificing himself, going up to see the Daleks and Clara, um, basically imploring the Time Lords to save him. And um, and once again, she's the symbol of reminding the Doctor and the Time Lords, in this case, who the Doctor is and and why that name is all they need. They don't need any more than that. Um, and then obviously you have the the scene, at, I'll always remember when the Doctor is me and mm. everything like from that is just absolutely beautiful. And, and like you said, it's some of the best uh, Doctor Who um, scenes because it's just so emotionally heightened and beautiful. Um, but yeah, I... Um, I, I I do think he did a really good job of kind of working the day of the Doctor into it because it's it's very <clears throat> one thing he's very good at is is kind of using current episodes to add even more context to past episodes. So like you know when you watch uh, Science in the Library and the Forest of the Dead, you have all of that context about River Song. Um, 
with you, which which suddenly transforms the story from what it was the first time it aired um, in series four. And it's a similar sort of case, for, I think, with Matt Smith's series um, in series five and six, because that whole time you're like, oh, my goodness, the cracks were the time war, were, were the time lords calling through. The, the silence were the ones trying to stop the Doctor from answering with his name it's really clever i think how he manages to harken back to all of those uh different plot threads it just could have been done with a bit more uh time i think yeah ironically um <laughs> but like you say he's, he's great at retroactively doing that but he's also great at then sowing the seeds later on because there's a huge amount of stuff that's in the time of the doctor then like you say he's then kind of like then goes into the Capaldi era, you know. That I think this is this the first episode where he says, "There's the phrase that I have a duty of care," which is a is a huge theme uh, between the Twelfth Doctor and Clara mm. as you go along like their journey. Um, and obviously, you've got that lovely callback where you, you don't realise it yet, but that point where Clara sees the phone off the hook and then puts the phone back and obviously yeah. not realising that, that the Doctor's just called future Clara to say, look, you know, you know, this is a big one, you know, the new Doctor's going to be scared, he's going to be unsure of himself and you need to be there to hold his hand. Um, and like you say, it seeds the whole thing about the Gallifrey thing being stuck in the pocket dimension, about them giving him the new regeneration cycle, and then him eventually then going back um, in like Hellbent, and that again that links back to you know these final Matt Smith stories where you know this is the man who won the Time War, you know, and all the the Gallifreyan soldiers laying down their arms and siding with him and not siding with Rassilon. Mm. There's loads of stuff that is seeded in this episode that then continues for the next two seasons, which is absolutely brilliant at how Moffat plants his seeds and as well as picking up plot points from the past, lays them down for the future to be picked up. And I think um, as well, I, I, I don't want to harp too much on about this, but I know how Ben receives a lot of criticism for being more about the Doctor and Clara than Gallifrey. Uh, but at the same time, I think if you actually watch this trilogy, you kind of see exactly why the story did that, not only because it was Clara's last episode and they needed to focus on her, but also because when you look at these episodes, Gallifrey's very much a big part of it, but it's always the relationship between the Doctor and the Companion that the episode always comes back to, because that's the core of the show. Um you know, the companion saving the doctor uh, in the name of the doctor and then the companion changing the course of the time war and then the companion again changing the course of the doctor, you know, running out of lives and then suddenly renewing himself. I think it's it's really nice how Doctor Who always comes back to that central relationship um, and I really like how in these three episodes it keeps coming back to that as well. Keeps coming back to the companion character being the representation of of us, of the audience, and and expressing that and expressing the core meaning of the show. Um, so yeah, like you said, it's it's just such a wonderful, not just the day of the Doctor, but the whole kind of trilogy, including the name of the Doctor. Just it condenses the whole meaning of Doctor Who so well. I think. Matt Smith, as well as just that final scene, he's he's brilliant playing the older Doctor. 
you you yeah. feel he feels so vulnerable and you feel so sort of uh, worried for him when he's he's still marching into battle mm. on his on his walking stick and things. It's uh, he's brilliant and and I think the bit that always gets me <laughs> is when Handel Handel's dies. Um, mm. But it's yeah. <laughs> it's entirely because of Matt Smith's the way that Matt Smith plays it because it's it is just a Cyberman head <laughs> and uh, it doesn't elicit any sympathy in itself. But it's the it's the Doctor, isn't it? When he's like, "Well done, mate," and all that. It's uh, yeah. it's uh, it's such a good scene. Yeah, it's um, it's crazy. It reminds me of School Reunion because um, I always get a bit choked up when Canine sacrifices K-9, himself yeah. in that as well. Um, and it's yeah, it's crazy that they're kind of inanimate objects, but the the performances just just bring that out so well. Yeah, I I love the overall kind of energy in that episode of just feeling like things have just run out and and it's obviously obviously you have that with all of the regeneration stories, but I feel I feel that like you really feel it in this episode because you see the Doctor physically age, which we haven't really before, unless you count um, like the <laughs> the Master turning the yeah. Doctor into Dobby. <laughs> um, but it, you know, in terms of actual chronological aging, it's something we don't see because we're so used to the Doctor being, you know, the same throughout his entire life. Even if he looks older, he stays the same way. But this is actually seeing the youngest Doctor just physically age and I think that's such a powerful uh, image and the fact that he essentially dies of old age which I think is so fitting for Matt Smith's Doctor because he's always been the ancient man in a young man's body in the same way that Capaldi's Doctor I feel like is a younger man in an older man's body with the stony exterior he's actually a child at heart um, and obviously you see that a lot with the guitar and everything um, but Matt Smith's Doctor is very much the other way around uh, you feel this youthful silly persona but he's actually a very dark character and a very old and world weary character so I think I can't think of a better way to to resolve things with his Doctor than for him to become an old man and to die of old age after this long stand Definitely. Yeah, because he's supposed to be on Trenzalore for about 800 years, isn't it? And that there's that lovely touch that, again, it's, it's just a moment of dialogue where he, he calls one of the children um, the same name as one of the kids from earlier on in the episode, when you mm-hmm. know that kid probably died a couple of hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. But it, it's that, and it gives you that whole, like, so like, tells you that, that how much the passage of time has has taken its toll on the doctor and that's something that we've never really seen before yeah and i think um picking up on the sort of series seven stuff having watched it recently when that still book came out it made me think that the speech that he gives in the power of three um to amy i think when they're at the tower of london and he's talking about how you know kind of what drives him and he's saying he isn't running away from things He's constantly running towards them because there's so many new things to see and experience. And and then for his, for his ultimate fate, just to be stuck in one place for 800 years uh, and defending it, it's you know it, it's kind of a reversal of, of what has made that doctor, you know, for the early part of his incarnation as well. Yeah, that, that's very true. I've never really, yeah, him being 
I think he he said, didn't he? I, I finally found somewhere that needs me to stay because he's so used to arriving somewhere, saving the day, and then running off. Um, and I think that theme really does carry forward into Peter Capaldi's era because his doctor very much you can tell he has the scars from from those nine hundred years on Trenzalore. Uh, the whole thing against soldiers, I feel, is obviously supposed to stem from that mm-hmm. that he has in Series Eight um, because he's just spent nine hundred years. In, embroiled in a war um and then obviously you have the the whole theme in the woman who lived um the story with lady me about uh, what happens to people the doctor leaves behind or because he's so used to just coming and going and i i love the way like you said that stephen moffat seeds these things and seeds these themes and uses them to carry forward into different arcs and and plot you know um themes and things like that yeah, because that's a huge point of, of the twelve like kind of like story arc over series eight, isn't it? The whole like, am I a good man? You know, I'm over two thousand years old now, and like you say, he's he's almost like kind of like dealing with the trauma of of what he'd experienced in that time on Trenzalore, and he's like kind of like fighting with himself of, of whether or not he is actually good and whether he does good in the universe, and then. He then comes to that realisation that, you know, he is a good man at the end of, like, death in heaven. You know, I'm just a fool who travels the universe and does what I can and I help out where I can. And So it's, it's interesting that, again, you know, Moffat's laying these seeds, you know, to be picked up, like, in later episodes. And that good man thing, it starts in the day of the Doctor, the lesson that Clara's teaching, isn't it, at the very, very beginning? Is it... Um Quote, quote from Marcus, Marcus Aurelius, Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius yeah. yeah. Uh, do not, what was it? Uh, do not waste time arguing who a good man should be, be one. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. It's totally just set up from the go there. Yeah, and that's the ultimate resolution, isn't it? At the end of Series 8 as well, is he's uh, just kind of, um, yeah, just just do it, just just be a good man. Uh, it's right there from the, uh, <laughs> from the Day of the Doctor. And actually, it, it kind of, it, it, again, it's a very Stephen Moffat thing because you have episodes like A Good Man Goes to War, uh, which ta- kind of uh, toys with the same concept of of the Doctor and is he a good man and what happens when he isn't. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it's it's fascinating, kind of, especially now we have the whole Stephen Moffat era and the whole Matt Smith era and the whole Clara era uh, to look back at. It's fascinating seeing how they all... Uh, have this massive kind of thematic cohesion going on um, and, and I very much feel like these episodes are at the core of that The other lovely bit I love from the Times of Doctor is uh, he pulls the, the seal of the High Council out of his pocket um, to help Handel's translate wow. the message and it's from the five Doctors specifically from the scene where the Time Lords offer the Master a whole new cycle of regenerations and it's only afterwards you think Oh god, yeah, he was seeding that, wasn't he? The idea that the Time Lords can can grant a new regeneration cycle. Yeah, um, and just it's exactly that. the same prop that um, was passed to the Master that the Master then lost, that the Fifth Doctor <laughs> then picks up. Yeah, and must have put it in his pocket, and then he's kept it all that time. It's <laughs> oh, love that's lovely that. attention to detail. That yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and then afterwards, you think, oh god, yeah, the the whole idea was there, the, the new regeneration <laughs> cycle. It's uh, yeah, I, I love that stuff. Yeah, and and the other the other thing I'd noted here was just um, what you said earlier, Ruth, about the fact that the the events of this story mean that the the events of the name of the Doctor never happened because the tomb isn't there. 
Um, so yeah, like the doctor would never have actually met Clara because uh, he wouldn't have gone looking for her. <laughs> yeah, and then you have the whole like a uh, a Missy thing as well, and like her giving the doctor. Clara's phone number or no her giving Clara the doctor's phone number and like how that fits into it. it just keeps getting more and more convoluted the further you go along um but I think that's kind of fitting really isn't it like the fact that Matt Smith's uh kind of ending is just centered around this total convoluted crazy uh <laughs> storyline um but again it it always comes down to the characters and he's very good at setting up a lot of uh crazy mysteries and plot twists but at the end of the day his his stories always center back on the characters which is where the focus should be i think so the the kind of more convoluted plot stuff tends to not be as significant in the end I'm sure Big Finish, if they get Matt Smith or Peter Capaldi on board, will probably answer it in the audio <laughs> drama at some point. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's Jenna Coleman that would be the most difficult one to get. Um, yeah. She's, um, she's she's a very in-demand actress. <laughs> uh, and then the other, the other big thing we've got on this set is An Adventure in Space and Time by Mark Gatiss. Uh, my favourite thing that Mark Gates has ever written by far, I think. Um, I, I love this. And you just watched this for the first time today, Ruth? Yes, I did. <laughs> because I, I, I don't know why I never watched it before. I think it's because um, of all the like box sets I've had for the Series 7 and the 50th and the Time of Doctor, um, it's always been left off those. So I've never really had uh, easy access to it. And for me, it's just been about um, just never getting around to it, I suppose. Um Although I've always uh, heard very good things about it. So I watched it for the first time today um, because obviously for this podcast and I was just blown away. I, I'm, I'm very annoyed at myself for waiting seven years to watch this, <laughs> but uh, it was it was absolutely marvellous. I, I cried at the end and I agree with you. It's, it's definitely my favourite thing that Gates has ever written. It's, it's just perfect. I, I couldn't fault it. It was It's just such a, a beautiful kind of summary of of the early days of Doctor Who and and I, it's made me really excited to kind of watch all of Hartnell's stuff because I've only seen the, um, An Unearthly Child from him so it's it, it's just such a beautiful kind of capture of the magic of Doctor Who and seeing it in its early days seeing Verity Lambert and uh, Sidney Newman and obviously Hartnell uh, and, and seeing how this show that means so much to all of us, where it started and, and the kind of the difficulties that they had and the complications and, and the way that it felt very touch and go, like they weren't sure whether it would be a success or whether it would even last more than a few episodes. It was just, yeah, I, I was really blown away by it. It's great. It is a love letter to the show, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I, I, I watched it again um, just the other day at a, a We've seen it three or four times now, and I still get weirdly anxious watching it. That it, like, when they're talking about cancelling and stuff, <laughs> <laughs> and said, oh, when um, when the guy, uh, it's, I can't remember the the guy's name, Mark Eden plays him, doesn't he? And um, and he says, like, just can it, just just kill it off. And you go, oh no, like you know, what's going? And you think, well, I know that he doesn't, obviously, because <laughs> we're still talking about it now. But it's yeah, it's just so so well done. Um, and the way that everyone's a bit dubious at, at first, and uh, and then they all just get so impassioned by it, by the ideas, and and, and very Lambert's really fighting for it, and and 
Hartnell goes from being, oh, I'm not sure, to just really just taking over his life. And, and he's, he's, it's so sad when they let him go, uh, when he has that meeting with Sidney Newman, isn't it? It's, uh, but then the, the point with the, when, he, when he sees Matt Smith, and it's, it's, uh, it's just that moment when he thinks, well, by relinquishing it, I'm ensuring its survival. Uh, and it can just run and run and run. Then it's it's like that moment of realization, and uh, yeah, I, 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 it's it's so well done, so beautifully done. Yeah, and it's a, it's something that Mark Gatiss like wanted to do for many years. I think uh, um, you mentioned thirty years of the Tardis, the thirtieth anniversary documentary that went out on BBC One. Mm. I think um, wasn't he one of the Daleks that he was in one of the Daleks that went across Westminster Bridge. Uh, um, and I think he, he said that that's when he had the idea. And he said, well, if he ever got into television, um, he would pitch it as a, like a, a drama of the week. And I think he first tried to get it done in the um, 2003, the 40th anniversary, because by then he was obviously, he'd written for television, League of Gentlemen had taken off, he'd, he'd acted in other stuff. So he had a bit of a, a cash. He'd also... Um, pitched a, a version of Doctor Who in 2000 but you know there was the rights issue and it was turned yeah. down um, and I think at the time they said no we're, we're concentrating on launching the show again we don't want anything to take away from when Russell T Davies brings it back because by that point you know it already the contracts had been signed and it was well on its way to coming back to TV mm. but it was always at the back of Mark Gatiss's mind to like you know if I ever get the chance I want to do a drama about how Doctor Who started because it's a wonderful story and it is. Yeah. It is. You know, it came so close to being cancelled. It, you know, unfortunately went out the day after, you know, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The ratings weren't what they were. You know, Sidney Newman, expertly played by Brian Cox here, you know, um, said no bug eyed monsters and then yeah. obviously has to accept that Verity Lambert, you know, knows better. Um, then he does and said, well, yeah, fine. You know, you know the show better than me because now it's a rating success and it's, it's a wonderful story. And it is, it is heartbreaking that, you know, Hartnell had to leave, but you get the feeling that if Hartnell had stayed on and then they just ended the show, then we wouldn't be here today mm. talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. It Absolutely. It's, it's been in his mind for a long time because um, it's so well worked out. And actually, I only remembered when you were talking there, it was the Doctor Who night they did in the, the 90s, wasn't it? That he did a sketch of this as well, of the creation of Doctor oh, Who. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Like a comedy yeah. sketch where so it's like somebody walks in and he's pitching it to Sidney Newman or whatever. And he's saying, well, it'll run for 26 years and we'll have like seven different actors playing the Doctor. And uh, and then they, they just come up with a theme tune. They're just sort of like drumming a pen on the desk and, and one of them's whistling and stuff. Um, I think it's, it's on the box set, I think, isn't it, of the first three stories? It uh, is, so but it, they've yeah. edited one of the lines out because um, um, I think Mark Gatiss said he, he regretted putting that line in because it's a cheap gag. Yeah. You know, because the guy says, oh, I don't, I want proper actors to play it and, he, and obviously Mark Gates goes what for the whole 26 years he says ah towards the end any old and swears will do yeah um, but yeah but they've cut that line out of it you know because um, I think Mark said it was disrespectful to um, you know some of the later actors in the role 
So yeah, and and he, and he seemed to regret it, and he thought, well, yeah, I hadn't actually thought that these people would be sitting down watching this with their families. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, only to be uh, to be to be summed up quite disparagingly like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, Dave, David Bradley really holds the the drama together, doesn't he? He does mm. a wonderful portrayal of, of of being William Hartnell, but then also recreating the First Doctor as well. Yeah. And obviously he was so good at that that uh, <laughs> they brought him back for Twice Upon a Time, which I think was just a wonderful tribute, not only to um, to this film itself, but obviously to his performance, which I think is just so wonderful and and I think captures uh, the energy of the first Doctor, at least obviously I'm not as familiar as you two probably are, uh, but captures that energy down to a T, the, the kind of more... Uh, kind of abrasive edge but also that real kind of special charm and and like like they said in the in the in the film at that twinkle um and I'm glad he got a chance to really have a whole episode just as the first doctor as well as playing Hartnell here because he was just perfect yeah I think Stephen Moffat said that was actually Peter Capaldi's idea yeah it was yeah yeah I bet you, I, I can almost, um, I, that just reminded me of a funny uh, panel, uh, It was, I think it was 2016, and, and Jenna Coleman was talking about how she got to be in a scene opposite William Hartnell, and Peter Capaldi was very, <laughs> was very offended, um, <laughs> because she was kind of boasting and loading that over him, just to push his buttons, because that's what their dynamic's like, um, and then he pulled out a phone, um, showing a selfie of him and David Bradley so I wonder if that was <laughs> I wonder if that's like I, I kind of laugh I always think about that uh, panel because it makes me think um you know Peter Capaldi probably went to Jen and was like I finally got a whole episode with the first doctor so one up to you now <laughs> and of course Big Finish use um, not just David Bradley but the the actors cast as Susan, mm-hmm. Ian and Barbara in the Big Finish First Doctor audios as well, no? That's such a lovely touch, isn't it? And I think all of the actors they got were really... Um, obviously, the likenesses weren't 100%, but they captured the kind of energy, I think, really nicely for the purposes of the, the story. And I, I absolutely love uh, Sasha Dwan and um, uh, Jessica Rain. You know, they capture their characters and the real people so beautifully I think they they have such a lovely charm and relationship and they do such a, a wonderful job of recreating the the props and the costumes as well I mean we got that lovely um, recreation of the um, first TARDIS console um, because of this so that's been used yes. in the series since yeah. Yes, it was used in um, it was used in Hellbent, obviously. Uh, it was then used in Twice Upon a Time as an actual recreation, um, and then obviously I think it looks like they might have even used it for Joe Martin's Doctor. I don't know if that's the case, but it's a very similar uh, console. Um, so uh, yeah, I uh, and I'm pretty sure they also use it in the most recent finale episode mm. as well. So it's it's lovely to see, and it's such a gorgeous design, isn't it? I think it's my favourite uh, TARDIS design, or co- certainly the console design, because it's so like intricate but simple. And I think they film it beautifully in this. The way they kind of, the way this episode kind of really captures the magic of seeing certain Doctor Who elements, seeing that console, seeing it going up and down, seeing the dark 
Daleks for the first time, the way they're kind of revealed in shadow and um, you see the designs kind of come to life. It's, it, it captures that magic of seeing these things that you're so familiar with kind of at the very start uh, really beautifully. Yeah, everyone's faces when the Daleks first come on the set and uh, and it's shot from inside the Dalek and everyone's just sort of like, because everyone's smoking because it's the 60s and it's just looking at them like I've never seen anything like that before. Yeah, I love seeing the old studios, the huge the huge cameras and, and all that type of stuff. It's uh, it's brilliant. And that, and that TARDIS console was at the... Um, the Doctor Who experience as well, latterly. Mm-hmm. Um, we got to see that sort of not long before it closed. And, uh, yeah, amazing seeing it in real life. Uh, it's it's stunning looking. I'm yeah, sure. it was a really brilliant uh, reproduction. I'm sure it is the one from the uh, the Joe Martin TARDIS as well and the, the spare TARDIS from uh, mm-hmm. from Revolution. Um, it's, it's very similar. And I think every time you watch it, you I th- I've noticed more cameos. Um, like I, I think the last time I watched it this for this, um, Caroline Ford's cameo, and it's really obvious. I don't know why I hadn't spotted it before. Um, she's she's like the mum that comes out into the street to call the kids in. Oh, of course, yeah. I, I, you know, I did actually twig that while I was watching. I knew she, I knew I'd seen her somewhere before, but of course that was Caroline Ford. <laughs> See, obviously, I was watching for the first time, so I didn't pick up on this as much. And William Russell's the security guard at the BBC, isn't he? Yeah. Oh my goodness, that's fantastic. And then Verity Lambert's leaving party, um, Jean Marsh, and uh, I'm really bad at remembering names. Is um, it Anel Wills? Is she? Yes, uh, well, yeah, yeah, Annika Wills, that's it. As yeah. Well, that, yeah, they're they're standing next to each other at the um, yeah the the leaving party. Um, and Toby Haydock's the barman at the BBC bar as well. Because oh, yeah. I've, I've heard him say, and I, I can't remember if this is on one of his podcasts, so it might have been, I saw his second uh, Doctor Who stand-up show, the um, the one that's called My Stepson Stole My Sonic Screwdriver, and he tells a story about how um, whenever he spoke to his agent, he'd always say, uh, they haven't phoned about Doctor Who by any chance, have they? It was like kind of a running joke. <laughs> and then um, he, he, went, he phoned them or went in one day and they said no nothing for Doctor Who he said oh there's something about a drama about the making of Doctor Who if, uh, but you know I didn't know if you'd be interested in that and he'd be like what <laughs> <laughs> of course I am uh, so that, that's, um, that's a nice cameo as well give it because especially around the 50th was when he started his brilliant like Who's Round uh, podcast that they, they put on the Big Finish podcast where he's um, finding somebody who worked on every single Doctor Who story ever to interview yeah, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, he's become quite the prominent um, on the uh, extras, hasn't he? As well, he, he's done yeah. a lot of stuff uh, since then. Yeah, I love I love some of those uh, the documentaries he does in the the collection sets are great. And then I can't which one it's one of the third Doctor stories where he gets the the Havoc stunt crew together and they they get him to jump off something onto some cardboard boxes and it looks like it's gone wrong and it's a really like, <laughs> uh, like awful moment for a second. But speaking of cameos, we also got the uh, the wonderful little half hour kind of like comedy um, episode, the five British doctors as well, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. I, I love all of the. There's so many like little tributes and details, and and 
I, they, they just absolutely spoiled us during 2013, didn't they? I mean, we had loads of like uh, little mini-sodes. There's, there's that really fun, uh, there's one uh, with the Time War, which is uh, like the perspective of, of a Gallifreyan soldier. Uh, there's one of Strax, which is like him introducing uh, the Day of the Doctor to the audience of the cinema, which is good fun. Um, and then uh, even uh, going back to the name of the Doctor, there was that really cool cool uh mini-sode called he said she said which was like a a kind of uh matt smith's doctor and clara um kind of trying to figure each other out there were lots of really cool little details like that i mean the only thing that wasn't so good was the uh i don't know if you guys remember the doctor who after party which was a bit of a disaster (laughs) i i i've rarely watched something so cringeworthy in my (laughs) life and it's quite painful it's fun to watch purely to see stephen moffat's reaction (laughs) as he sat on that sofa and he's seen it all fall apart especially when they do the um is it the transatlantic uh interview with one direction i know wrong. And the the way the poor past companion actors are kind of just shafted around, and then oh my goodness, it was just an absolute car crash, wasn't it? But mm-hmm. it's kind of one of those things that you can look back on uh, fondly in a way, uh, <laughs> even though it wasn't very good. It, it's, it's still one of those things that you can laugh about. Yeah, and, and John Hurt, bless him, I think he sat on the same sofa and kind of like just looking around, going, "What the hell's going on?" <laughs> The different reactions are, are priceless. I, I've seen a lot of images, and you have like, you have Matt Smith trying to joke around. You have John Hurt looking bewildered. You have Jenna Coleman kind of like smiling in the most painful way, and then you have Stephen Moffat just full on face palming. <laughs> I think doesn't the interviewer keep calling all the all the past companions by their our characters' names as well? Yeah, um, <laughs> really weird. Yeah, and I think there's. Um, I remember the, there's a moment when the. the talking to John Hurt and he says about um, like he used to be like a drinking buddy of Tom Baker and used to go around Soho together and you think oh yeah. I want more stories of that like never mind One Direction like you want that's what you want like those stories from the 70s of uh, of all those great actors uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of having these I epic st- sessions I suppose that just makes us all the more thankful for the the really savvy kind of uh marketing and energy that they did do like that was a misfire but the way they managed to to make it such a celebration uh having all of the past doctors involved um having Paul McGann involved Tom Baker um having the tribute to Hartnell and all of the the people who started all of this uh with an adventure in space and time I think that just it's lovely to have all of that just in one set isn't it um and i'm I'm really looking forward to getting the new seal book and and watching it all again (laughs) yeah and there's um i think i don't know if i watched it before this time but the it's called behind the lens on time of the doctor um and you've got the bit where matt smith the read through is getting really really emotional Mm -hmm. reading that last scene oh yeah yeah um i hadn't seen that before that is it's quite moving isn't it it is, yeah, because he gets to the point where I'll, where he says the the lines just as he regenerates, and he he, he can't get them out, yeah. can he? And, and you've got like he, he he's visibly upset because I think he, he it's kind of then dawned on him that he's actually leaving the role, and you've got Stephen Moffat kind of like patting him on the back, going, mm. you know, it's all right, mate, it's all right, you know, it's yeah. okay to be upset. 
and watching that in in quick succession with an adventure in space and time where um david bradley as william hartnell has that moment when he's sort of standing over the he's like leaning against the mantelpiece and he starts mm. sobbing mm. and he well he says the david Tennant line doesn't he? he says i don't want to go yeah yeah um and you get that sense of uh yeah of moving on from that um because i think a lot of the docs especially David Tennant and Matt Smith have both said actually afterwards, haven't they, that they maybe should have stayed on a bit longer or Yeah. Yeah, and it, it goes to show just how much those roles mean to them. Uh, and it's it's a role for life really, isn't it? I mean, all of the doctors are still the doctor. They don't stop being the doctor just because they leave. Um, but it still must be tremendously hard. Mm. Um, and I like that they also had the kind of companions changing as well, because that's a, a massive uh, change in itself. And I like the whole, the bit about Susan leaving. And I love the way they focus on, on the doctor's speech to Susan. You know, one day I'll come back and go forward in your beliefs and prove that I'm not mistaken in mine. I, I, I think that's such a lovely uh, kind of tribute and, and it's such a wonderful way for that um, film to end with that mm. speech. Yeah, and there's, it's a, there's a nice little montage, isn't there, once Verity Lambert leaves and there's kind of like that montage of, of David Bradley as William Hartnell watching everything change in front of him, like the new mm. producer coming in suddenly there's a new companion, then that companion leaves, and then there's another companion comes in. And so kind of like it, it's happening too fast before him. Everyone that he worked on the show that he, he was close to has now gone, and that now like adds to his loneliness and that mm. kind of like desperation in him that he doesn't want to leave the show because he feels that, you know, if he leaves, then, you know, the show's gone. Mm. Um, and there's that lovely moment, isn't there, when the technician can't get the TARDIS to work, and you know yeah. he just says, "Move out of the way," and he goes <laughs> underneath, doesn't he? He, f- he flicks the switch to get the rotor working. Yeah, and it's great that dedication that that he knows which switch and which lever does what on the TARDIS console. Um, yeah, because he said, "Well, the kids are going to spot if I'm, you know, if he does mm-hmm. one thing one week and one thing another." Um, yeah, the way the way the role really absorbed him. And I suppose that's the case with every doctor to some extent. And, and I mean, you see, you saw how Peter Capaldi embraced the role and the way he just totally, <laughs> he was just totally a fanboy, wasn't he? Like yeah. uh, how excited he was to have like uh, going to Scarrow and seeing the classic Daleks and, and then the Mondasian Cybermen and uh, the old TARDIS. Um, it, it's lovely to see how much the role means to the actors and and obviously Jodie as well now um the way she still has that that same energy that Hartnell did towards children and how excited it makes people and makes children and seeing an actor embrace that because it's so much more than just an average role it's very mm. much a a cultural icon and and an icon specifically for children which I think is is just lovely it does it goes above and beyond the the tv episodes because I think mm. the the message at the beginning of lockdown that Geordie recorded which was her idea as well to sort of put the costume on and, and mm. you know sort of try and reassure kids um, and yeah there's, there's, there's always stories like that isn't like the thing about Tom Baker he was like a heavy smoker and drinker but as soon as the kid walked in uh, he'd always put that aside and just snap back into character and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah and then obviously you, you saw the stories of like Peter Capaldi would always reply to children or fans with a little doodle or a sketch yeah. you know, that he'd, he'd write on the autograph 
I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of years ago at Comic Con, and the guy before him had a Day of the Doctor poster, which was signed by virtually everybody associated with the show. And he went, well, okay, I'll put my autograph on it. But what he did, he's right at the top above David Tennant and Matt Smith on that like the, um, cinema poster, is he drew his eyebrows <laughs> looking down at the was spot on it looked like Peter Capaldi's eyebrows that he drew and then he signed his name next to it and it's like that's going above and beyond you know you could easily just you know if you're in that environment you know sign your autograph say hello next you know but he Mm. he took like literally five ten minutes out of his time to draw a personalized sketch on this guy's poster yeah I saw him a couple of years ago it was a thing up in Edinburgh um there was a video that kind of went viral afterwards when he, he um, somebody handed him the guitar and he was playing Starman. Mm. Um, it was that event. I'd, I'd gone by then, but yeah, they, I mean, the cues to see him were insane. Yeah. Um, but he, he, he just, yeah, he had time just to um, just talk away to everyone. Because uh, those situations can be quite awkward, can't they, of not knowing what to say to them. Mm. Um, but he was, he was just absolutely superb, um, putting everyone at their ease and, and having a little conversation. Uh, yeah, real, um, really there for the fans. He's, uh, he's yeah, and I, I think every actor has embraced that. You know, um, you know, we all have our favourite doctors. You know, or you know, you could take the whole Brigadier point. You know, splendid chaps, all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but all every single actor who who has encompassed the role has always taken that responsibility on to be friendly, approachable, and certainly not you know to touch base with you know, children who watch the show. And also fans, you know, I don't think I've ever seen or heard a, a bad thing said about one of the actors associated with the show. And I think, um, and and I think the lockdown has really shown that as well. Seeing, like you said, Jodie really step up and, and have the Doctor be a hero in the real world um, mm. and kind of using the, the power that the Doctor has uh, for people, uh, especially children, and using that to give people hope is just lovely. Um, and also, you know, even aside from the Doctor and the actors themselves, how Doctor Who has, has been a special thing in the past year as well with all of the watch-alongs. And I love that that started with the Day of the Doctor because you couldn't find a better episode for to bring everyone together during a, a really rough period. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it kind of shows just Doctor Who never stops being relevant and meaningful to people, um, even well past its 50th. And I mean, mm-hmm. it's heading towards its 60th now. So it's, it's just lovely to see how the show has only become more of a of a, a special thing and more important um, for everyone, really. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank <laughs> you very, very much, guys, uh, for making the time. That was uh, that's the time's absolutely flown in there, rattling through those stories. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just a brilliant collection to um, to chat through, and uh, yeah, I can't wait for the uh, for the steelbook. Um, <laughs> yeah, looking forward to receiving it, and then obviously revisiting these stories. Uh, you know, I'm really loving these steelbook releases, mm. uh, and obviously they, they save a lot of space on the shelf as well yeah. because they're more <laughs> yeah. condensed, aren't they? And the, the artwork is just beautiful. Uh, I mean, I, I, who, I was it. Um, Lee Binding who did this one or was it Sophie Chowdhury who did the art for for this one no I think Lee's um, done this one he's done the last couple I think Um, Sophie did I think three and four 
Um, she also but, did. Uh, she did five, six, and seven. I'm pretty sure. Right. Um, but yeah, Lee, Lee, Lee did the series one. He's done this one. It's great. And series two. I've got it as my lock screen on my phone. The um, the the. I think the reverse of it, where it's the TARDIS smashing through the wall from Day of the Doctor and um, taking out the Daleks with the little kind of mutant flying out the casing. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. Uh, so if you just want to let the listeners know where we can find you um, elsewhere on the internet, uh, Ruth? Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Undiscovered ADV, uh, short for Undiscovered Adventure. Um, and you can also find me, uh, well, you can find my project online. Uh, I'm running a project, uh, co-running a project called Clara Oswald, The Untold Adventures, uh, which is a, a continuation of Clara's story following uh, her departure in Hellbent. Uh, it's been in production for a very long time uh, because it's a very, very ambitious project. Um, and we've had a lot of bumps in the road, you know, COVID and everything. Um, but it's really coming together and I promise you when it does finally come out it's going to be something really special Fantastic. Um, and, and the Twitter for that is Clara Oswald TUA I can't wait sounds good uh, I'm on Twitter as DjangoMax72 and I'm also on YouTube with a Bearded Geek Toy Reviews where I review um, Doctor Who toy releases as well as Star Wars, Marvel um, movie action figures lots of other things brilliant yeah i love that i love the um boba fett the boba fett helmet um oh yeah yeah, yeah. that looks just such an awesome toy yeah i, I don't wander around the house wearing it honest <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't blame you if you did no. <laughs> it's great yeah so um so definitely check those out thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time goodbye